Hebrews chapter 12 in mind, where we are challenged, where we are exhorted to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him, think about that, for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has now sat down at the right hand of the throne of God in heaven. And And really, what better thing could we do this morning than having sung these great songs of our faith and having been ushered to the cross and been reminded of the love of God that that was, in fact, demonstrated, poured out for us there when Jesus paid the price with his body and his blood and then the triumph of the empty tomb. Why wouldn't we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith? As we think about that, particularly that line, who for the joy set before him did these things. It was for the joy set before him he endured the cross. It was for the joy set before him that he despised the shame that came with it and went ahead and did what what he and the Father and, and the Spirit had agreed in eternity past that he was in fact going to do. I want you to think about that because that joy, there's at least a dual nature to that joy For Jesus, there was the joy of doing his Father's will. He said in himself, he delights to do his Father's will. He came to do his Father's will. And and that's always first and foremost, that that he would carry out the will of his Father. But the other side, the other dual nature of that joy is Jesus. Think about this. He went to the cross. What Gary just reminded us of, what these songs are stirring in us once again. Jesus went to the cross also for the joy of knowing that it would purchase your salvation. That one day he'd see your face in his presence in eternity. That one day someone would share the glorious good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ with you and you would say, yes, I believe. And to Jesus, that was great joy. The word says he rejoices over his children. That he sings over the lives of those who are his. Would you just now, if you haven't done so already, I feel like the heavy lifting of the service has already been done, but... But if you haven't gotten there yet, would you just in your mind's eye, in the quietness of your heart, truly fix your eyes, your attention on Jesus and all that he's done for you, how very much God loves you, and what a joy it ought to be for us as well to walk, again, as Gary was reminding us, on our best days and on our hardest ones, to walk and step with him. Father, we thank you for this day and for the privilege, really, the great privilege of gathering as brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ to be reminded of the things that matter most. Father, all of us in one way or another throughout the week that has just been completed have had all sorts of people in our lives telling us what what matters, that this matters a lot and you need to give your attention to that and you better sign up for this and you'd better get in line with that and you better agree with me here and you better get this done there because all this stuff matters so much. And then we fix our eyes on Jesus and we say, oh, yeah, that's he is who and what matters most. Father, would you forgive us for buying into the distractions and the lies of our week, giving our attention to other things rather than truly resting in Jesus? And would you, Father, to whatever way you have not done so already, begin even now to stir in our hearts once again the joy of our salvation, the joy of knowing Jesus the joy of walking with him and knowing that he walks with us all the days of our lives. Father, we're thankful for that this morning. At the same time, Father, we're also mindful or we need to be mindful that while we gather here this morning in comfort and in ease and in shelter, Father, it is not that way around the world in so many places. And Father, many of us this morning are thinking particularly of our brothers and sisters in Mozambique, a place that is near and dear to our hearts, Father. Uh, The Dondo Baptist Church and the work that 
uh, that Kathy and, 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 and John and Cindy and so many others have gone there to witness and so many of us have prayed and given to. And Father, uh, the news this week is they were hit by, by the most destructive storm that's come that way in decades. And, and Father, the direct hit was, was right where Dondo is. And Father, we pray today for, for those who are hurting and those who are suffering and those who tonight have no roof over their head and no food on their table because they don't have a table And Father, we pray that it's not as bad as we think it might be, but that somehow in however bad it is, that the grace of God would abound still more. And and draw, Father, draw the people there who know you close to yourself and and bring those who don't know you running to Jesus for salvation. And Father, find their hope in him. We pray for Kathy as she left Friday to go to that part of the world, that you would protect her as she goes. And Father, as this may have gone from a an equipping mission to a rescue mission. Father, I pray you'd give she and her teammates the grace to know what to do and then to do it with all their heart and that we would stay faithful here, fervently lifting them up, Father, as they minister to those in in the greatest need. Father, thank you that you love and care for them every bit as much as you love and care for us. Father, with all these things in mind now, we seek to turn our attention to your word because your word is truth and your word is life. It's a, a lamp to our feet. It's a light to our path. And Father, I pray over these next few minutes as I speak with my brothers and sisters what you have shown me and as they listen to what it is that you want all of us to hear, Father, I pray we'll remember that we didn't come to listen to the preacher, but through the preaching we came to listen to the voice of your Holy Spirit, to respond to his prompting, Father, to yield to his pressure, to rest in his forgiveness, Father, to, to be secure in his sealing. Father, as we go to your word now, we do ask that he, above all, would be our teacher, that you would guide us in truth, that you would guard us from error, that you would deliver us from all the baggage we brought in, and you'd help us to see Jesus. Father, may we see Jesus clearly this morning as we look to your word. May we see Jesus only this morning as we look to your word. And when we leave in a while, Father, may it be with renewed joy and fresh hope. Father, not because all is right with the world, but because in Jesus all will be well and is well when we walk with him. So it is in his name and for his glory that we pray, as all God's people said together, amen. Amen. You may be seated. As always, you take your seats, boys and girls can head out for Children's Church, and I will invite you to meet me again this Sunday in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14. Meet me, if you would, in your Bible in Mark chapter 14. I really mean it as you're making your way there when I say I, I do feel like, like the, the, the heavy lifting, the, the real serious business of worship this morning is already done. Uh, we have sung these incredible songs of worship and, and declaration of Christ and the cross. We've, we've, been to, uh, we've been through communion now, been reminded of God's great love. And, and I don't know if you've looked at the title of the sermon yet or if you've read ahead in the passage, but but uh, you may be thinking after all this talk about love and mercy and grace and forgiveness, and then if, if you know where we're going in God's word this morning, and I had this little conflict in my soul momentarily as well, that this may seem like we're veering off course somehow into some place uh, uh, entirely maybe not in keeping at all with where we have been already. And I want you to know that that is not the case whatsoever. Though we're going to look at one of the most difficult, one of the most emotionally gripping and moving scenes in all of Jesus' earthly life, the story of Jesus' earthly life, I believe believe with all my heart what we're going to see in God's word today is exactly in keeping, in, in perfect uh, complement to everything that we have been reminded and been singing about so far. So with that, I want you to find your way, as I said, to Mark 14. This morning we are going, you may remember last week we looked at the story of Peter's denial 
We were in the verses immediately preceding this, looked at a handful of verses, then we leapfrogged over about three dozen uh, verses in Mark 14 to see the conclusion of that. Well, now, and over the next two Sundays, we're going to fill in what we skipped over uh, last Sunday in that look at Peter and and, and his denial of the Lord, uh, filling in the blanks of what came in between. So we're picking the story up this morning in Mark 14. I'm going to begin reading in verse 32. Then I'm going to read through verse 42, where I invite you to follow along, pay close attention, as this is what the Word of God says. It says, they, this would be Jesus, and now the 11 remaining faithful disciples. They came to a place named Gethsemane, and he, Jesus, said to his disciples, sit here until I have prayed. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. And he went a little beyond them and fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came a third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Pastor Keeney Dickinson, who is a colleague of mine in the 6-4 Fellowship, the ministry I've told many of you about, the prayer ministry I've been affiliated with for a number of years, often says he teaches a lot on prayer and the prayer life of Jesus And he often says, and it's a great reminder or a great truth to grasp if you've never heard it before, that when he was here on earth, that Jesus was one who did not pray in the context of ministry. But while here on earth, Jesus ministered in and through a context of prayer. Let me say that again. It's on the screen so you don't miss it. When he was here on earth, Jesus... He did not pray in the context of ministry. That is that Jesus rather ministered in the context of prayer. In other words, what that means is this. Prayer wasn't something Jesus did every day in order to check a box and then get on with his business. Prayer wasn't just something, one of several spiritual practices or disciplines that Jesus engaged in in order to to prepare for a new day's tasks or assignments or work. But rather, for Jesus, prayer was his way of life. He was always in a context of prayer, and everything he did, and everything he said, and everywhere he went, and everyone he met was ministered to in and through and out of the context of a thoroughly praying life. And while the other gospels certainly give us more frequent and deeper glimpses into the prayer life of Jesus, the times he prayed, the ways in which he prayed, the words that he used, Mark does so as well, but he does it in a different way. Mark assures us that Jesus was one who ministered in and through a context of prayer by simply but very strategically pointing out the prayer life of Jesus on three occasions in his gospel. First one's in chapter 1. 
In Mark 1.35, it's the first time Mark tells us Jesus prayed. It's at the very beginning of his ministry. And it says, early in the morning, he went off to a quiet place to spend time with his father in prayer, reminding us from the very start that's who Jesus was. Second mention is in Mark 6.45. It's at the pinnacle of Jesus' earthly ministry. It's at the peak of his, uh, his popularity among the people. It's at the conclusion of what I believe would have been the, the, the busiest single day of ministry he ever had. He just finished feeding the 5,000 on top of about six or seven other things he'd done that day. And it says that evening, again, he went off to a quiet place to pray. And the third and final glimpse Mark gives us of the praying life of Jesus is here. It's right here in the middle of Mark 14, moments before his betrayal. And because that's so, what I believe and what I'm going to offer to you this morning is simply this, to say that this scene, this passage, this story from the life of Jesus has as much to say to us about prayer as it does anything and everything else it might have to teach us. It's got a lot of things to teach us. There are a lot of angles at which we could approach it and dig into it. But the one we're going to look at is what it has to say about prayer. Because in this scene, in the praying of Jesus, you see that his humanity is accentuated and stressed. You see that his, his deep, daily, moment-by-moment -moment dependence on his heavenly Father. And it also shows us this. And this is really sort of where we're going with all of it this morning. It also shows us how it is the moments in which we fe least feel like praying are usually the ones where we ought to be praying most. It shows us that the moments in life when we, when we, when we need to pray most are, are, are often the ones, where we, where we, where the ones where, where we feel like praying least are the ones we need to pray most. And what we're going to see by the time we're done is also this, that those are also the moments of prayer that tend to make the biggest difference in our lives as well. And so that's where we're headed today, like I said, in this scene from Mark's gospel. But before we dive in, let me give you a couple quick points of context just to connect the dots with the bigger picture. We're coming back into this story. First of all, it's late Thursday night of Holy Week, probably drifting past midnight into Friday morning. So we are now into the day when Jesus goes to the cross. In this particular moment, Jesus and the disciples, they've already been together on the Mount of Olives. They were probably up at the top of it. Now we believe they have moved somewhere else lower down on the Mount of Olives into a private, secluded garden area that, that had been, the Gospels would seem to suggest, a frequent place of retreat for Jesus and his disciples throughout his ministry, a place they'd gone to get refreshed, a place they'd gone to get away from the crowds. And not by accident at all. The name of this place, Gethsemane, you've heard of the Garden of Gethsemane. The name Gethsemane literally means oil press believe there was, in fact, an oil press there. And the purpose of an oil press, and you'll get sort of the imagery as I tell you about this, of why it's not coincidental that that's where they were. The purpose of an oil press was to take the fruit of a gardener and to crush it, to crush olives thoroughly and absolutely and completely in order to squeeze, to press out all of the precious oil they contained. That's where Jesus took the eleven leaving eight of them at the gate, taking three of them further in with him. And that's where Jesus retreated in his final moments together with them for what, as the title of the sermon suggests, was a bitter hour of prayer before he headed to the cross. And in this bitter hour of prayer, and what I want to show you in the time we have left together, are really four things I think we need to pay attention to. Four things that I think we need to see both about the prayer life of Jesus in this moment 
And then, of course, as always, what it has to say to us. And the first one is this. First thing I want to draw your attention to, that I want our attention turned to in this passage, is that right from the very start, we take full note, number one, of Jesus' determination to pray. Of the determination Jesus had to pray in this particular pivotal moment. You know, one of the most common, frequent questions people ask about prayer, they probably always have, they certainly do today, is this. Why? If God is in control of everything, as we believe the Bible says he is, and he already knows how things are going to turn out, he already has a solution, why pray? If he's in control of it all, and he's already determined and knows the outcome, why should I bother to pray? And I think that's a fair question. I think that's a good question. And what I'd like to suggest is that Jesus' example in this story directly confronts, if not fully resolves, but it directly confronts that question. Because think about it, Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen. He knew what was coming. He knew that literally around the corner was betrayal, arrest, abuse, crucifixion. It had been fixed before the dawn of time. He knew what was coming. Much worse than that, he knew that that in the process, what that was leading to was, was going to be abandonment, being forsaken by his own father. And that in the midst of all that, he would endure the full measure of his father's wrath. Jesus knows exactly where this is going. And he knows exactly how it's going to turn out. He knows the father's in charge of it, that it's a plan. So what does Jesus do? Well, look at your Bible, verse 32. Mine says this, that they came to a place named Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here until I have what? Prayed. Until I have prayed. Listen, not because he didn't know what was coming, but because he did. He knew exactly what was coming, and he knew what it was going to cost him. And what did he want? He wanted to be near his father as the hour approached. He wanted to draw strength from his father as his suffering increased. The point is very, very simple. Please don't miss it. In this hour, when certainly I would, I would imagine there's part of his humanity that wanted to pray least. He knew, he determined, I must. This is the hour when I need to pray most. In his darkest hour, number one, Jesus was determined to pray. That's the first thing I want you to see. The second is this, and this is probably the main thing. This is the one where we'll drill deepest. That having made that determination, having arrived at that conclusion, that we then begin to see in verses 34, 35, and 36, Jesus' conflict in prayer. The conflict that Jesus experienced endured in this hour of prayer in Gethsemane. You know, one of the things that if you've been with us for a while throughout this series, I've tried to keep coming back to, or at least we've taken note of all the way along, is how throughout the, uh, the, the entire story of his earthly life and ministry, Jesus was always in control. That nothing ever took him by surprise. That he had an answer for every question that was brought his way. He had a solution for every problem that was presented to him. He always knew how to take his enemies' attacks and expose their deception and sort of put them in their place. Every funeral he ever attended ended up in a resurrection. I mean, Jesus always was in control. He was unflappable all the time. Never rattled. Never upset. In a fearful kind of way. So here in verses 34 through 36, I think we really need to pause and try each one of us to lay hold of the fact that we've never seen this Jesus before. 
I don't think the disciples had ever seen Jesus this way before. Let's just walk through the three verses very deliberately, and I'll show you what I mean. Look at verse 34. It says, He took Peter and James and John to the inner portion of the Garden of Gethsemane, and it says he began to be very distressed and troubled. Then verse 34, here it is. He said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. Now, the the scholars, the commentators tell us that the idea, uh, the, the literal idea of what Jesus was saying, expressing here, is that in this moment, he's so overcome with horror. He's so overcome with the reality and the weight of what it is he's about to do that physically, in a literal physical sense, he's at the brink of death already. His body is simply ready to give up under the pressure of what's coming his way. One author puts it this way. He says, quote, during all of Jesus' earthly life, he had been conscious of a steadily mounting pressure. It's getting nearer. It's getting closer. And what are we being told in verse 34? Finally, the dam breaks, and it all comes pouring out. The reality, the awareness of what's ahead of him. Verse 35. That's why it says he went a little beyond them. And fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. Here's what you want to picture. You want to picture Jesus beginning in the traditional Jewish prayer stance, on his feet, arms to heaven, eyes probably looking to his Father. That was the typical posture of prayer. But then what do we see? And and the other Gospels help fill in some of the, the blanks, help color the picture for us a little bit, that he moves from there. As he moves further in, he staggers first to his knees, and then Mark finally says here, ultimately to his face, where Hebrews 5, 7 tells us that in that hour, he cried loudly through tears, repeatedly to his father. This wasn't a gentle weeping down his cheeks. This was wailing, sorrow. Luke The physician writes that praying fervently, his sweat became like drops of blood falling down on the ground. Verse 36, and he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. This is really the pivotal verse of the whole scene. This is the linchpin of the passage. You've got to understand this to get what's going on And what we really need to focus in on, what I'd invite you to focus in on in verse 36, is is this mention of the cup. Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. You see, throughout the Old Testament, the Old Testament era and the Old Testament scriptures, everybody knew that the reference, the metaphor, the picture of a cup was a picture of God's wrath. The cup of God's wrath. Sometimes the psalmists and the prophets picture it as, as bubbling and stirring and being some sort of fervent activity, the wrath of God. That's what Jesus is talking about. Because that's so, Kent Hughes very helpfully suggests that if we can use, kind of run with that word picture, that metaphor for a minute, that what Jesus is doing in the garden is he's looking into the cup. And Hughes suggests that when Jesus looked into that cup that he mentions here, he saw two things, at least two things. Number one, he saw the totality of human sin. Can you imagine He could see, he could fathom the totality of every wicked word, thought, deed, act that's ever been committed. From the littlest white lie to the most bloody genocide. In all of its perversion and all of its ghastly detail. Take a moment if you dare and think about the worst possible sinful scenario that you can imagine. The thing that that horrifies, turns your stomach the most. And then imagine that multiplied out an infinite number of times throughout all of human history. 
Jesus sees it all as he looks in the cup. Hughes says that that's not all he sees. He sees the totality of human sin, but he also sees the fullness of God's wrath, of God's holy, righteous, appropriate anger, limitless anger towards sin. And what does Jesus see? I got to drink that cup. To, to take it another way, it's going to be poured out on me to the full tomorrow. All of it. And what does Jesus say? <laughs> Lord, if there's a part of the plan you haven't told me about yet, now would be a really good time to reveal it. If there's any other way. He's not just mouthing these words. This is the humanity of Jesus coming out, saying, if there's another way, if there's any other path that can be taken. I am listening because here's what he knew. He knew if even one lost sinner is going to be saved, even though we might say that the cleanest, the saintliest sinner of all, the best of the worst, he's still got to drink the whole thing. He still has to absorb it all. And here's what Jesus is saying to his father. I know what that means and I don't want to do it. Knowing what that means, I don't want to do it. Abba, Father, look at verse 36. All things are possible for you. He please remove this cup from me. Frankly, calling it a conflict hardly seems to suffice. What Jesus is dealing with here. But that's what's happening throughout this bitter hour of prayer. He's wrestling through what's coming his way. And you know what makes it more astonishing still? (laughs) That having, number one, determined he will pray in this hour, knowing what's coming. And secondly, being shown the conflict he experiences in this hour in, in enough detail anyway to realize how awful it was. What is astonishing even more so to me is that in this moment, here's the third thing I want you to see in the passage. Jesus was able to make an appeal to his disciples about prayer. Third thing I want you to see is that there is in this passage an appeal about or concerning prayer. You see, here's the thing. In these next few verses, 37 through 40, what usually gets all the press, what all the sermons and and, and books and essays are about is is Peter. And, and, And about how Peter, after a couple hours earlier, I mean, he is just crowing and going on about how faithful he's going to be and how devoted. And, and even Jesus, if you got to die, man, I will be lockstep with you. I'll go there. Remember. And then what do we find an hour later in the garden? Dude can't even keep his eyes open, right? So much for all that, all that courage and all that bravado. And usually that's what everybody pays attention to here. And then we talk about what miserable people we are that we can't pray either and all that kind of stuff. And, and, and there may be some truth to that. There may be a lesson there, but I don't think it's the important one. Because it's interesting, but it's not nearly as instructive as what Jesus said here and what Jesus told them to be doing in verse 38 and the difference that it'll make. Look at your Bible. Actually, let's back up to verse 37 just for the flow. Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Now, here's Jesus' instruction. Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation For the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus said, guys, I want you to do two things. Number one, I want you to watch. Word means to be vigilant. Be alert. 
I mean, he is saying, wake up. Pay attention to what's going on around you. Pay attention to what you're seeing and take it all in and pray. But here's the thing. Not pray about something you want God to give you. Pray, but not pray about something you want God to do for you. That's not what Jesus said. He said, watch and pray. In fact, he says, keep watching and praying. Just keep on doing it. It's not a one and done, move on with your life. Keep watching and praying. Why? So that, look at your Bible, look at verse 38, so that you will not enter into, one word begins with T, what is it? Temptation. Watch and pray so you won't give in to temptation. Now here, the particular temptation they face is what? It's to bail on Jesus, to run, to flee, to hide. For Peter, it's to deny him, as Jesus, of course, has already indicated he's going to do. The reason Jesus wants them to watch and pray against that is because he knows what succumbing to temptation always does. It always, us, always exposes us to more temptation, to the possibility of further sinful actions and choices and decisions and behaviors. Once you've given in once, it just opens up a whole new world of dangerous opportunity. So in other words, here's what I'm saying to you. Jesus' appeal here about prayer, his appeal here through prayer is that prayer, this personal conversational communion we are to have with God, is a safeguard. Listen to me. It's a safeguard against going off the spiritual rails. Prayer is a safeguard against destroying your life momentarily or or for a long, long period of time as a follower of Jesus Christ. And I believe as followers of Jesus Christ, as followers of the Son, we've got to take that to heart of the difference that prayer makes. That prayer is a safeguard against trouble. Partly because of just a very practical reality. All right, Let's be perfectly honest and practical about it. It's really, really hard to rob a bank. It's really, really hard to beat somebody up. It's really, really hard to cheat on your spouse if you're praying, right? If you're praying. But at a deeper level, the, the habit, the practice of prayer is a safeguard as well. Because I've heard countless stories, you've heard some of them too, of true believers, followers of Jesus Christ who have gone off the spiritual rails, sometimes in spectacular ways, from world-famous preachers to ordinary churchgoers. And you know what I hear when, when one of those people, those men, those women, those young people, finally come to their spiritual senses and repent and take stock of what's done? What I hear in those stories over and over and over again is way back when I just stopped praying. I just wasn't interested in making time for Jesus. All that stuff about daily time with the Lord. Who's got, I'm too busy. I'm not interested. It's boring. I mean, read the stories. Listen to people. We talked about last week, following Jesus at a distance. It always goes back to a choice, a decision. Somewhere, it's not the only factor, but it's one of them. To allow distance to be created in our, our relationship with Christ, the failure or the refusal to be a man or woman of prayer. And I think it's amazing that in his final hours, knowing not just what's coming, but what he's already entered into, what's Jesus doing? He's still reaching out to his disciples saying, guys, one last lesson, pay attention. See what I'm doing? You need to do it too. It'll protect you. It'll keep you close. 
in his last hours prior to enduring the worst suffering anyone will ever, ever face. What's Jesus doing? He's going the extra mile for his disciples. He's still ministering through the pain to them. I think we need to see that too. Number one, Jesus' determination to pray. Number two, Jesus' conflict in prayer. Number three, this appeal he makes through prayer. And the fourth and final thing I want you to see in, in the last two verses of our passage is Jesus' resolve that came through prayer. Jesus' resolve through prayer. Look again, if you will, at those final two verses, starting in verse 41. Because some people believe that when Jesus said, and there are a couple of schools of thought here, a lot of people believe that in verse 41, when Jesus, when it says, Jesus came to them a third time, and he said, are you still sleeping and resting? When Jesus said, it is enough, and, and actually some English translations render it this way, that Jesus was chastising the disciples for sleeping. And I think that's one way to look at it, but I honestly, I don't believe that's what's happening here at all. I don't think Jesus is calling them out. It's enough, enough sleeping. Knock it off. It's not what he's saying, because if you look at the word itself that Jesus used there, in, in my Bible it's three, it is enough. In Greek it's one term. The Greek term, if you're interested, it, it, it's epeko. And what epeko means, Jesus comes to them and says basically epeko, what, what that word means is this. It means to, listen, to acquire one thing by having let go of another. It means I, I acquire one thing because I let go of another. In, in, in everyday, ordinary terms, we can understand. I walked into the store. I handed the clerk my money. I let go of my money. I walked out with a new pair of shoes. I just epechoed, right? I, I gave up one thing, and I acquired another. That's what the word means. And so when Jesus comes to the disciples and he says, get up, it is enough, he's not referring to something that he wanted the disciples to do. He's not chastising the disciples for something bad they did. He's talking about something that had already been done right here in his own heart and life. An epeko, an exchange had taken place. And that exchange is this, his external anguish, internal anguish, all of it, his horror, his terror, his fear, have been exchanged for a calm, settled resolve. It's time to go. Look at the verses. You cannot avoid that there's a, uh, ignore the fact that there's been a change. He came the third time and said to them, remember, keep in mind what we talked about the conflict. Now he says, are you still sleeping and resting? It's enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man's being betrayed into the hand of sinners. Get up, let's go. For the one who betrays me it is at hand. Verse 43, then immediately it happens. And, and if you continue reading ahead into next week's text, the next 10 or 11 verses, it's clearer still. Something's changed in Jesus' disposition. And where was it changed? In prayer wrestling it through with and before his heavenly Father. Something happened when Jesus, a conviction was forged as he went to prayer. Listen, the, the darkness ahead of him had not diminished one bit. He still had to drink the whole cup. But his condition, the peace which surpasses all comprehension, what had it done? It had flooded and overtaken him. And he's ready to go. There's no other explanation and through this hour of prayer, something had changed. 
just as can happen in your life and mine when we pray too. You know, I've told you before about my conviction as I've learned and grown just in the practice and the spiritual activity of prayer. I've told you before that, that I'm really convinced that when Jesus gave us what, what we call the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, that when Jesus began that conversation, the disciples, Luke says, came to him saying, Lord, teach us to pray. And he said, all right, when you pray, pray this way. I've told you that my conviction is that when Jesus said pray this way, it wasn't a suggestion. It was actually instruction. See, there's a way I want you to pray. Not that I want to necessarily you to recite these words, the Lord's Prayer verbatim, although I think there are times when that can be very valuable. It's a very comforting and encouraging way to pray. But that he was giving us direction. He was giving us, if you will, a pattern. And not that we want to be legalistic or, or, or overly structured about it, but he was saying, listen, if you want to pray, you want to seek the Father in extended times of a prayerful conversation, here's the way to make the most of your time. And I've told you that, that I see, I've been taught, and I, I believe there are really four parts that he was driving at here. If you just go through the Lord's Prayer, it, it's pretty clear. It begins with reverence. There's four R's if you want to write them down. It's reverence. Begins with reverence, looking to God, not coming to him with my list of God, here's what you need to do today so I can get done what I want done, but I'm going to look to you for who you are. How do I know that? Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. I'm just going to think about you for a while. I'm just going to worship you for a while. I'm going to stop thinking about myself and magnify Christ. And then I think the pattern Jesus gives us is after we reverence him in worship and adoration that that it leads in my heart and it should lead in yours to a time of response. There's your second R. Having taken a good look at the Lord, what does that reveal? Is there something I need to confess? Is there something I need to, to deal with? Is my life out of alignment, my will out of His? How do I know that? Because our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There's a response. And I think Jesus was saying after that, that after you've taken a good look at the Lord and and a, and a good appraisal by the Spirit's help of yourself, then you're ready to lay some requests before Him. It's your third R, just requests. Why? Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive those with debts against us. Resources and relationships, they're all right there. And then when you've done that, you've given Him your requests, then it really concludes in a spirit of fourth R, readiness, of readiness. Lord, as we leave this sweet hour of prayer. As we leave this time, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. And again, I'm not legalistic about that. I just think when Jesus said it, he actually meant it. That this is a good way for his people to pray. And the reason I take the time to walk you through that, because, and, and, and honest, completely honest, it was not until I had totally mapped out this sermon, the outline, the points, they'd all been written, that I realized that's exactly what Jesus did here. Imagine that, he practiced what he preached. How do I know that? Because what did I tell you? And again, I got the points before I realized the connection. He began with a determination, what? To pray, to seek his Father, to go to him. That's how he began this hour of prayer. He then, what did he do? He worked through the conflict in his own heart. He says it himself, not my will, but your will be done. I got to get this thing where we're in perfect alignment with one another. And then he begins 
as he lays his own request before the Lord, what does he do? He ministers to his disciples. He appeals to them. Seek God's help. Go to him. He is what in who you need. And then what did he do in the final two verses? Having resolved it all in prayer, he went forward. It's enough. It's time. The exchange has happened. My betrayer's here. Let's go. He steps out and moves forward with God's plan. The reason I take the time to walk you through that is simply to ask this question. Could anything provide you and me with richer motivation than that to seek the Lord in our lives every day in everything from our most ordinary daily tasks to our most overwhelming earthly trials. Because have you noticed it's the times when we want to pray least that we probably need to and would best benefit by doing so most. That's why the big idea, the message this morning is simply to recognize and understand, looking to the example and the model of Jesus, that it is in prayer where God truly gets hold of our hearts. It's in prayer, through prayer, that God truly gets hold of our hearts, reminds us of who he is, cleans out the junk, hears our burdens and needs, and settles us and prepares us for the next step, the next task, the next day, the next assignment. And can I tell you, It's really true. The moments when you feel like you want to do it least is probably a sign that you need it most. And that it's always right to go to him. Let's do it now. Father, Jesus is always the perfect example. Jesus is always the one, not only that we should, but that we can look to in any and every circumstance, in every joy or trial that we face 